Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord. Today, we want to tell you the story of a teenage saint, a sinner, and a pope without compromise. This story, another part of our 2,000-year journey as a church and a people of God, is about St. Rose of Viterbo, who was raised to sainthood, Frederick the Sinner, who God would use to raise her to that height of piety and virtue which forms a saint, and Pope Gregory the Ninth, who stood firm against Frederick. How did we get to know this virtually unknown saint? In 1976, Bob and I made our first pilgrimage to Europe in the Holy Land. In 1977, we returned, only now with our 10-year-old grandson. We became the Three Musketeers, beginning an exciting quest, our journeys of faith to Jesus, Mary, the angels, and the saints. It was a great experience, which brought us from Belgium to France to Italy that year. We were 42 days on the road, going to the many different pilgrimage sites we had researched. It was a great adventure. Everyone thought we were crazy bringing a 10-year-old to Europe in the first place and then to compound it by traveling overseas for 42 days was the crowning lunacy they maintained. Well, let me tell you, that 10-year-old was a better pilgrim at times than we were. What brought us to Rosa Viterbo initially? She was a saint whose body the Lord left incorrupt on the earth as one of the signs of her sanctity, a body which has not decomposed and is miraculously preserved is one only one of the signs which the Lord gives us to recognize someone's holiness. It is not what makes one a saint. This particular sign is strictly a gift to the saint verifying the Lord's miraculous intervention and a gift to us of God's power and love. What will he not do to bring us closer to him through faith? Consequently, he leaves us signs or gifts to help us in our journey toward him in heaven. In the case of Padre Pio, for example, although he had all the gifts by location, stigmata for 40 years, perfect confessor, reading men's hearts, this is not what the Holy See used to determine his holiness in the cause for his beatification and will use for his ultimate canonization. Padre Pio has been judged as with all candidates for the virtuous life he led in his vocation, in his case, the priesthood. Once again, the world is in turmoil and the church is under attack. Without compromise. Our Lord Jesus would not compromise and they re-crucified him. His loyal vicars would not compromise and they, along with Mother Church, over our 2,000-year history, have been nailed to the cross. Knowing this, our popes, his vicars, chosen as they are by and through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, live and die for their spotless spouse, the Church. We cannot begin our story of a saint without first giving the historical background of why the Lord raised up this young girl. Whenever the world is threatened by a sinner, God raises up a saint and often a pope without compromise. Listen with your head and heart and ask yourself how this pertains to us, our church, our country, and our world today. We are in the days of conquest and greed. Greed desiring more, requiring more. And then of requiring more, conquering more. 
out of necessity to feed this giant, conquests begot conquests. And so the freedom St. Paul spoke of, we no longer slaves, was once again set aside, the sacrifice of the many for the power of the few. To set the stage, let us begin with the sinners. Frederick I Barbarossa, a Roman Empire of the 12th century, his son, Emperor Henry VI, and grandson, Frederick II. As with all monsters, Hitler in the 20th century and Frederick I, the Redbeard in the 12th, we, the foolish, believe we can coexist with them. So did the papacy in the 12th century with Frederick I. We will show you how the Holy See again and again made attempts to coexist with one after the other. First, Frederick I, then Frederick I's son, Henry VI, and his heir apparent, Frederick II, who would follow in his grandfather's footsteps. What began as cooperation between the papacy and Frederick I would turn into Frederick I's greed overcoming his good judgment as he went about trying to reestablish the Carolingian rule of the 9th century and the Ottonian rule of the 10th century in Italy, which gave the emperors the royal right to take over the church and all the papal states, not only choosing prelates and making the bishopric a part of the empire, but requiring all bishops be friends of the emperor, taking all their orders from him. If you study the history of the church, you will see that the bear, which seems to die in one century, will revive in another century with the same desires, the same heresies, the same attacks, and the same ferocity. Is this not what happened when the German princes were able to use Martin Luther to do their dirty work, separating the church in Germany from the true church, the Roman Catholic Church, for the supreme purpose of confiscating papal lands donated to the church over the centuries by grateful kings and queens? Jesus said, a house divided against itself will not stand. The northern states of Italy, tiny, little fragmented states under separate rulers, separated from each other and other little kingdoms of Italy, were fair game for any conqueror desiring to plunder and vanquish the divided weak. Frederick I decided the way he could make Italy once again an empire, a Hohenstaufen empire, was to begin with the conquering of the northern states of Italy. But he did not count on the Lombard League, who was in alliance with Alexander the Pope at that time, and Frederick I was defeated in Legnano. Reconciliation came about between Pope Alexander and Frederick I, and consequently an alliance between Frederick I and the northern states. Whereas in the Peace of Constance, Frederick granted the states some sort of de facto self-government, he maintained for himself and his heirs monumental rights as overlord. Although all his attempts at world domination were vanquished in his lifetime, Frederick I would be victorious in the end. What he could not do with force, he did using his well-known infamous maneuvering. He married his son Henry VI to the heiress of the Kingdom of Sicily. In this way, he realized his dream to establish a Hohenstaufen Empire in Italy. As the empire now encircled the Papal States, 
It not only weakened their position, but it made the northern states vulnerable. Gregory VIII became pope. Frederick I, seeing the worldwide domination emanating from the onslaught of Saladin and his troops of the Saracens, summoned his soldiers and prepared to head the third crusade to the Holy Land. Even that was to be thwarted as he drowned crossing the Salaf River in Asia Minor. Upon his father's death, Henry VI was crowned King of Germany in 1169. Then, 20 years later, King of Italy in 1189. And then, King of Sicily in 1191. In addition, he was crowned Emperor that same year. Unlike his father, Henry was not very charismatic. He lacked his father's warmth, the charm that won so many over to his father. But what Henry lacked in personality, he surpassed his father in knowledge and love of the Catholic faith, that which he probably received from his strong Catholic mother, Queen Beatrice. During his brief role, rule, he had three aims. One, to gain the approval of the German princes, as he came to the throne through hereditary succession, his father being from the Hohenstaufen family. Two, to an arrange an agreeable territorial agreement with the papacy. And three, to lead a crusade to the Holy Land from the lands and to deliver Jerusalem and the shrines of the Holy Land from the hands of the Saracens. Poor Henry VI's first claim was to fail, and that the German princes, while they did not hesitate to elect Henry's infant son king, they did reject the doctrine of automatic succession to the throne by virtue of royal birthright, in this case the Hohenstaufen family. The second aim failed, as the new Pope Clement III was wary of dealing with Henry, who had too much power and was a decided threat to the papacy not only as king of Germany, but through marriage as king of Sicily. His third aim, to lead a crusade to the Holy Land, was blessed by the Pope. It received great acclaim by the German citizens, but alas, it too was to fail. Henry died the night he was to leave for the Holy Land, resulting in his troops returning and, re and abandoning the crusades. The empire was divided between Henry's brother, Philip of Swabia, and his infant son, Frederick II. We have heard the age-old adage, like father, like son. Well, maybe because of Henry VI's sudden death and division of the empire, great catastrophes were averted, and he was not able to fulfill his father's dream, like conquerors before and after him of world domination, but the adage would become a prophecy only like grandfather, like grandson. For a second Frederick would rise from the ashes of his grandfather's failure and become a pawn for the greedy, seeking that which is not theirs. Now, before he, she died, his mother, the Empress, entrusted Frederick II to Pope Innocent III. When Emperor Otto I, who had feigned loyalty to the Pope, turned against the papacy, the Pope supported his loyal ward, Frederick II, to rule over Italy. Through this, Innocent III prevented Otto I from gaining supremacy over Italy and confiscation of not only Italian principalities, but papal lands as well. Frederick II was victorious, blocking the takeover of Italy by Otto I. 
When Frederick II took over principality after principality in Italy, it was without incident. He was welcomed not only by the Italians but Pope Honorius, who, plan, who placed the imperial crown on his head. At that time, Frederick II pledged his loyalty to the cross and the papacy. But things became strained between the Pope and Frederick II as Frederick's ambitious appetites for more and more power grew more and more ravenous. The renewed threats to the papacy and the northern states resulted in doubt, disbelief, distrust, fear, and ultimately bitterness. Frederick II's thirst for power never fully quenched. He went about not only unifying Italy under himself, of course, but waging a campaign for her reentry into the Roman Empire with him as emperor. His borders of influence dangerously kept expanding. The Papal States, seeing the danger in the progressively unrestrained, inordinate power Frederick was amassing in the world, feared the Church would be next. Sure enough, in 1231, Frederick made unbridled demands on the northern part of Italy, including the confiscation of lands belonging to the papacy. The new Pope, Gregory IX, condemned Frederick and charged him with heresy, accusing him of desecrating, looting, and pillaging church property. Frederick's ambition to found an empire on the strength of his takeover of all Italy was forestalled by the Pope's action. A rose will bloom in the desert. Frederick II was excommunicated for the second time. He retaliated by attacking the Papal States, and this is where Rose of Viterbo comes in. In 1240, Frederick II decided to occupy Viterbo. The Lord, always with us in time of need, sends into this world of hopelessness and helplessness a baby. A few years before the frightening entry of Frederick II into the sweet, serene village of Viterbo, there was an entry that would inflame the populace with new courage and hope. A child was born. Little Rose would let out a cry that would grow and grow until it awakened the people to a new consciousness that they could make a difference. Her parents were not of noble birth, but had instead the gifts needed by a future saint. Holiness, virtue, piety, humility, and charity. From her earliest years, Rose showed an alive, unending, overflowing love for the church, for Jesus, the Blessed Mother, the angels, and the saints. When she was just eight years old, she had a vision of the Blessed Mother in which Mother Mary told Rose she would be clothed in the habit of St. Francis. She was not to become a cloistered nun, but a tertiary, part of the third order, remaining at home, giving witness to her family and neighbors by word and action of Jesus in her life. Four years later, she became ill. But the Lord, having too much work for her to do, she soon recovered and donned the habit of the lay penitence of St. Francis. When she began to contemplate Jesus' suffering and how wounded he was by the ingratitude of his children, Rose went to the people of Viterbo, preaching in the streets, knocking on doors, going from house to house, berating her neighbors for their complacency and apathy towards the freedom they had lost at the hands of Frederick II. She told them they could be free. All they had to do was overthrow the Gabellian garrison. She was all of age 12. 
But her age did not deter the populace from listening, their hearts on fire. It had been so long since anyone had spoken of the beauty of Italy, of the promise the Lord made to his children not to leave them orphans. She told them they were not born to be slaves but free, and they listened, and miracles came about. Everywhere she went, she was greeted warmly. Citizens, having heard of her and the marvels surrounding her speech-making, gathered to hear the good news. Men who no longer had the will to get up in the morning were plowing their land once more. After all, it was their land. Little Rose had said so, and so new life came into the ancient village of Viterbo. Crowds began to gather. Her father became nervous. Soon the authorities would hear of her and they would all be punished. What was wrong with her after all? They had food on their table. He scolded. He pleaded. He berated her. He cajoled her. Finally, she leaving him no recourse, he threatened to beat her if she did not stay home and cease her preaching. Rose replied, if Jesus could be beaten for me, I can be beaten for him. I do what he has told me to do, and I must not disobey him. Father and daughter seemed at loggerheads when the local parish priest intervened. He urged her father to cease restraining Rose from doing her divinely appointed duty. Father withdrew his objections, and Rose was free to preach, and preach she did, tirelessly, rising early in the morning, retiring late at night, as if one driven, knowing time was short. This sounds like the urgency Jesus had with three short years to reach the children of God. This sounds like the time of Jesus. It sounds like our times today, with the few speaking out, the John Baptists of our day, crying out in the desert, repent and be saved, and the many. She was free to preach for two years, standing on the street corners of the town, crowds gathering, clamoring for more, her voice crying out, theirs joining in. They were a people to be reckoned with. She was uniting them, rallying support for the Pope and the Church. They took up the cry, defend the pontiff's cause. Then some villagers who had sold their souls to the emperor for land and position became alarmed and began clamoring for her execution as an enemy of the state. The mayor of the town would hear nothing of it, protesting the girl was innocent. He had a few reasons for his defense of Rose. He was a fair and just man, but also a prudent and wise man. He feared for his life, for by this time Rose had become a little Joan of Arc. The townspeople had been resigned to the carnage of their existence. Rose brought them reason for hope and rejoicing. There was a light at the end of the dark tunnel they had been journeying through, and the mayor pitied anyone trying to put out that light. What was the wisest course? Banish Rose and her parents from the village. And so the mayor ordered them escorted out of town. The little family settled in Soriano, and it was there that Rose prophesied, announcing to all the forthcoming death of Frederick II looming in the near future. He died in Apulia on the 13th of that month. The papal party was reinstated in Viterbo, the citizens of Viterbo were slaves no more, free at last. Their little heroine was also now free to return to her beloved village, 
but not before she was to go through a test by fire, truly fire. A citizen of Soriano, loyal to the emperor and the royal Hohenstaufen family, threatened Rose with burning to death at the stake if she did not renounce the pope. Rose responded by asking her to be quick about it, thanking her for the privilege of dying a martyr's death for the faith. Having completely confounded her adversary, she not only disarmed her, she won her over for Christ and his vicar, the Pope. Rose returned to Viterbo with her parents. It was time to go to the convent of St. Mary of the Roses in Viterbo and ask for entrance as a postulant. As her parents were not able to supply the necessary dowry, the abbess refused her entry. Rose prophetically responded, You will not have me now, but perhaps you will be more willing when I am dead. Seeing the piety in the little missionary who had brought so much light into everyone's life, the parish priest had a chapel built with an adjoining house near the convent of St. Mary of the Roses. There, Rose and a small company of young women could follow a life of the religious. But the company of nuns received an order from the Holy See to close down the convent as it was too close to the other convent. At that time, cloistered nuns subsisted solely on begging and the generosity of villages. There have been many instances in the lives of saints that we have researched where the people of the town have complained or other religious orders have claimed about new orders coming up taking their Uh, the money that they would have received from the villages. To have two convents close by in the same village could be burdensome to the townspeople, or worse, would cause the two other convents to suffer. Rose returned to her parents' home. There she died on March the 6th, 1252. She was 17 years old. They buried her in the church of Santa Maria in Podio, But six years later, her body was transferred to the church of the convent of St. Mary of the Roses, just as she had prophesied. Although this church was burned down in 1357, her body was intact and is preserved miraculously till this day, incorrupt. Each year, her body is carried in solemn procession through the streets of Viterbo. Upon her death, Pope Innocent IV, the same pope who had refused to allow her to have a convent near the other convent in Viterbo, ordered an investigation to commence into the virtues and sanctity of Rosa Viterbo. However, it was not to happen in his pontificate, but 100 years later in 1457. As with many saints of the past, the faithful proclaimed Rose a saint before the official canonization. Because of the virtuous life she had shared with them when she was alive and because of the miracles the Lord gave them through her intercession before and after she died. Pope John Paul II told the youth of the world at a youth conference in Denver, Colorado, that they are the church of today. Rosa Viterbo began defending her pope and her church when she was 12 years old. What is the Lord asking of you? Why are you listening to this program? Pray. The Lord has such an exciting plan for those who say yes. We see a gentle revolution coming about. Just watch. One Sunday, 
the faithful receiving Holy Communion. With few exceptions, you will see our young, our teenagers, our future leaders of the Church going up to receive their Lord reverently, many of them on the tongue genuflecting before receiving. They believe their Lord is truly present, and they want the world to know they believe. Do we have roses of Viterbo in our time? You can bet on it. Will they change the world? Jesus is counting on them, along with our vicar, our sweet Christ on our earth, our Pope. Watch the young married couples teaching their babies how to make the sign of the cross, their young children learning to genuflect before entering the pews. See the little worshipers not yet ready to receive their Lord in Holy Communion, processing up to the altar, arms crossed to receive a blessing from the priest. Look around you. You will see mommies and daddies teaching their children what is happening on the altar. If you want to have tears in your eyes, watch the daddies lifting their young ones so they can light candles to Jesus in front of statues of Jesus with his most sacred heart encircled by a crown of thorns. It is a glorious sight. It is a sign of hope. We are living in a world where they tell us we are helpless and they go about trying to prove we are hopeless. But the hope of the world lies in what we do today. For the world that I make today is the world my family, those who follow me, will inherit. You and us share that world and share in that responsibility. Are you bringing up a Rose of Viterbo? Are you bringing up a Joan of Arc? Where are our heroines of tomorrow? Are we setting an example for our babies? Go for it. We love you. We love you. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply, with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.